the stars are right, and that means it's time for another episode of The Whisper in Darkness. I'm your host, The Man from Lang. Thank you very much for joining me today. On this episode, I'm introducing a new segment, No Stone Unturned, in which Nate, Matastrophic, and I discuss a topic relevant to the Arkham Horror LCG. On this episode, we are talking about playstyle and how it informs our deck construction. This topic was suggested by patron of the channel, Joshua Westland. If there's a topic that you would like us to discuss, leave a comment down below and we will do our best to get to it. There are spoilers through if you care about that sort of thing. If you enjoy what you hear, remember to like, comment, and subscribe. Before we get started, I'd like to thank the patrons of this channel for their tremendous support. The Arkham Horror LCG community is amazing, and these people have gone above and beyond to bring you content like these discussions. Speaking of amazing members of the community, special thanks to the Sageless One, the latest patron to Embrace the Darkness. Thank you very much for your support. It is greatly appreciated. I know it's technically not allowed by the rules, but to add another Elder Sign token to your Chaos Bag on me, you deserve it. If you'd like to be amazing like the Sageless One and support the channel's goals and see your name on this list, head over to Patreon.com, sign up for a tier of your choice, and claim your rewards. That would be awesome. Special thanks to Cole Monroe Trinity for the amazing art that graces the channel, Nicole Fiscus for the new Whisper in Darkness logo that graces the podcast, and Nate Lost in Time and Space for the intro as well as the overlays. Thank you very much. I couldn't do it without you. Without a further ado, let's get started. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, we have uh, finished our reviews of the player cards in the uh, Edge of the Earth Investigator expansion. It uh, took us uh, quite a while to uh, to work our way through all the cards. We do plan on uh, taking a look at the five investigators in the box as well. In the meantime, we received a request from patron of the channel, Joshua Westland, to uh, talk a little bit about our play styles all three of us uh, play at uh, different player counts and uh, tend to play uh, quite different decks. I tend to play almost exclusively true solo. Sometimes I dip my toe into uh, two-handed solo, but uh, primarily solo, while uh, Nate Lost in Time and Space tends to play solo and uh, two-player over on the uh, Great Old Ones gaming channel with uh, Vase. Uh, they are making their way through the uh, Edge of the Earth campaign, and uh, Matastrophic tends to play three or four player almost exclusively, and uh, not so much solo. So we each play at uh, at different player counts. So to uh, talk about our play styles, I thought it would be interesting to take a look at uh, each of us have brought a deck that we have built. Um, and uh, we will talk about how that deck and the cards in it to inform our playstyles and uh, vice versa. This is a an Agnes Baker deck that uh, I uh, stole from someone uh, online and uh, made a few modifications uh, to it. It's fairly typical of the uh, the solo decks uh, that I tend to build. Basically, you can divide this into uh, two parts. We have the uh, the fight part and the investigation part. The uh, the fight part includes uh, meat cleaver and uh, shriveling to handle most of the uh, the combat duties, as well as uh, Agnes's special ability. So when she takes horror, she can deal damage. Between those three, that is uh, primarily what I'm going to be using for fighting. There's also a couple copies of uh, the event Fight or Flight in there if I need to uh, to boost my combat 
and uh, one copy of Blood Pact as well for those uh, rare situations that I need to uh, to boost my combat skill value high enough to uh, to attack something. Able-bodied is in there as well, but it's just a nice general card that can help with uh, either combat or agility as necessary. Spectral Razor is another card that I often play, although it did not uh, make it uh, into this deck. As for the investigation part, we have uh, two copies of Rite of Seeking and two copies of Sixth Sense and uh, two copies of Drawn to the Flame. Other cards I tend to play include uh, Read the Signs. We've got uh, a couple copies of Arcane Research to make my cards cheaper and down the rabbit hole. This deck can upgrade. It upgrades Shriveling and Rite of Seeking for, I think, a total of 2 XP, and then the rest of the deck can be upgraded to... Uh, for uh, about 14 XP. The skills package is primarily uh, focused on passing skill tests. I've got a couple copies of Fearless in there simply because I like to heal a little bit of horror without actually having to take actions to do it. Fearless accomplishes that. Promise of Power is simply above the, the curve in terms of power. I'm not going to turn my nose up at four uh, uh, wild skill icons, even for a curse token, and then, of course, unexpected courage. So between right of Seeking, Sixth Sense, Promise of Power, and uh, Unexpected Courage, I have several ways to, uh, to gather clues and or fight if necessary. Now, the the type of playstyle that I, I tend to use, I tend to play the game very quickly, and I don't mean how fast I play. I tend to try to complete scenarios as quickly as possible. So generally speaking, if the scenario is finished in anywhere from 8 to 12 turns, that is uh, that is what I am aiming for. I uh, And in order to accomplish that, I tend to hit the ground running as quickly as possible and play I want usually either right of seeking or sixth sense ideally sixth sense but uh, if I don't draw that then uh, right of seeking and uh, shriveling and that's pretty much it in terms of assets I just want those two down and then everything else is pretty much optional I would like to get arcane initiate and Peter Sylvester down of course to have some soak but cards like Blood Pact and Forbidden Knowledge and stuff like that, I tend to be very reluctant to play them. Even the Meat Cleaver, if I've got a Shriveling down, I will be very hesitant to to take a turn, an action to play Meat Cleaver if I don't need to. And so uh, this playstyle has served me pretty well in true solo. It does get me into trouble sometimes, though, in that I can be so reluctant to play my assets down that I can often sometimes get into a situation where uh, I wait too long to play, say, the al that extra ally that I need, and so I end up in a situation where I uh, occasionally will get either ganged up on by too many enemies, or I just run out of time, or I take a little bit too much damage. Or uh, the other issue I sometimes run into is that I don't get set up properly. I, I hit the ground running, I'm moving uh, between locations and discovering clues, and I'm so reluctant to take that, you know, the steps I need to set up that in some scenarios uh, that you need to set up for a certain aspect of that scenario. I, if I'm not paying attention, I can sometimes get myself into trouble. One example of a scenario like that is is the secret name, where at the beginning, 
you're very focused on just sort of getting the clues, getting through the rats, getting to the second phase of the scenario. But in that second phase, you need to be ready for uh, both Brown Jenkin and Nahab. And if you're not set up for that, you can run into some trouble. And I have run into that trouble a couple times uh, with decks I play where I'm so focused on going as fast as possible that I fail to set up properly and then Nahab appears and then I'm not ready for her and then the uh, the game enters a downward spiral. But generally speaking, this playstyle has served me pretty well in true solo and if I do dip my toe into the two-handed solo play style as well, I tend to play pretty much the same way and play very similar decks. Usually I will end up playing one uh, investigator that's good at fighting and one investigator who's good at uh, investigating. The investigator who is primarily focused on discovering clues will move as fast as possible through the locations and the uh, investigator that is in charge of fighting just sort of follows behind and kills anything that's needs to be killed and they tend to to move pretty much in lockstep sometimes that means the uh, investigator in charge of fighting doesn't have a lot to do so i do include some clue discovery but primarily they're focused on on fighting when you're building a deck to play true solo and you're playing the scenarios i find that really you're focused on a few things a discovering clues b you need a way to fight uh, usually you need those sort of at the same time because if you're playing true solo and you draw an enemy turn one you can really end up in a lot of trouble and it doesn't happen that often but those games it does you do need a way to to get out of that and then it's always nice to have some type of action advantage, whether that's discovering multiple clues or dealing additional damage or taking additional actions. That's always helpful because in solo you don't really have a ton of time, so any way that you can gain additional actions is great. And then it's also nice to have some extra movement. Now this Agnes Baker deck does not really have uh, that aspect in it, but... Uh, Occasionally, I'll include cards like Astral Projection and stuff like that, to, depending on the scenario, to, to move around. So that's, a, that's generally how I play. I get my, my preferably my Sixth Sense down, my Shriveling down, and one of my allies down. And that's probably going to be it for the most of the scenario. If I say run out of shriveling charges, I might consider dropping blood pack down. I'd like to get forbidden knowledge down at some point, but if I don't, I'll probably be okay. And uh, and that's pretty much it. So it's it's move as fast as you can and play as few assets as possible and just try to be as as efficient as possible is is the playstyle that I adopt and and the decks I play tend to tend to reflect that. Yeah, I see that you have um like almost all of your cards are two copies and I see you have a, um quite a bit of what's the word I'm looking for not repetition but uh redundancy. Um you've got basically four clue spells and you have four ways to four assets to let you defeat enemies. Um you've got four allies even though you're only going to play one of them really. 
So I guess what I'm noticing is like you tend to like it looks like you tend to have decks that are like pretty focused, and you have you include some redundancy probably to make sure you're able you maximize your chances of drawing what you need um, in your opening hand, so you can uh, so you can actually get rolling as soon as possible. You know it sounds like you don't want to spend a lot of turns going draw, draw, resource, draw. No, mm. no, definitely not. It's I really either want a shriveling or a six sense in my opening hand and then something to discover clues whether that's a drawn to the flame or a promise of power or an unexpected courage this deck actually has a little bit less clue discovery in it than some of the decks i play it doesn't include read the signs which i usually include in my mystic decks just to add a little bit extra clue discovery i often play perception as well just because i like to have an extra card in there that can discover clues if necessary because then I don't have to slow down. Even if I don't happen to draw my sixth sense, I can power ahead between promise of power, unexpected courage, perception, read the signs. I have all those tools at my disposal. And then in terms of fighting, usually I'll play Spectral Razor as well or some other. Mystics don't have a lot of great options in the event slot for, for dealing damage, but usually between Agnes's ability, uh, that can actually get you out of quite a bit of trouble if if you run into low health enemies. She, she can often take a horror and kill those and then and then keep on moving. Yeah, that is one of Agnes's strengths is that especially in like a true solo setting, you're able to she can like deal herself a horror to deal a damage and then she can take a hit in the enemy phase and deal another damage. So I see what you mean there. Like especially in a true solo setting you don't have to rely on Agnes to, like... She's not exactly going to have to defeat, like, eight health worth of baddies in one turn, right? You know, it's just... That means things have gone horribly wrong already. You mm -hmm. get to that point? Yeah. Because, like, when you said um, Mystics don't have a lot of events for dealing damage, I mean, my perspective, I think Storm of Spirits, like, immediately. Right, yeah. Yeah. But when you're playing True Solo all the time, like, you're not going to need Storm of Spirits. Something has gone horribly wrong if you need Storm of Spirits. Yeah, that's a that's a good point because I know Storm of Spirits is an interesting card in in True Solo because ideally you don't want to have to use a card like Storm of Spirits in Solo because if that's happened then something like you say has gone terribly wrong and you've been swarmed by enemies. But I have found in I, I mentioned a secret name earlier. I would almost upgrade my Storm of Spirits first in that campaign rather than my shriveling because it's so important in secret name to be able to wipe the board of brown jenkin and rats and anything else that you run into i've played that scenario a few times with solo mystics and initially i was like oh of course i'm upgrading my shriveling and then realized that no actually for this particular scenario Storm, the upgraded Storm of Spirits is a better choice because then you can kill rats in Brown Jenkin and you don't have to waste the action to engage with Brown Jenkin and right. and do all that. You can just nuke the nuke the room and keep on moving. Whereas Shriveling, while it might hit pretty hard, you've actually it's more action intensive and mm -hmm. and the rats in that scenario are pretty tough. I mean they they get extra health, so it's you really do sort of need to upgrade to Storm of Spirits. Is it two or three? Um, three. Just because that extra damage is so important against those rats. You can't really... The level zero version doesn't do quite enough to 
to take them out. So while I think a lot of players sort of just look at, you know, well, I'm going to upgrade shriveling and six cents right away. I think you also need to keep in mind the scenarios that you're playing. And if you expect to face a lot of, a lot of enemies, then, then you've got storm of spirits as an option. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's mystic dynamite blast. Yeah. Another interesting thing about your deck that I had noticed that sort of popped out to me immediately after reviewing the deck was the lack of lucky in the deck. You know, I think that's a card that sort of feels like an auto-include in so many decks, but in true solo, and I think especially in a deck like this, where not only are you dealing Tesla's damage, so Lucky is going to be less useful in that regard, but with an, with an intellect of two, oftentimes Lucky isn't enough to get you over the hump. So it's interesting that you that's kind right. of, you you take that into account and you play a card like, fight or flight which is going to push you up to a four or a six or you know however much horror you have the competition for the event slots in this deck is is pretty fierce i i have gotten a lot of value out of fight or flight in play and it, it's very valuable for those times when you need to do if you've got you know more than one enemy and you need to to be able to to do a lot in one turn or usually evade a lot in one turn that really comes in handy the moonlight ritual here is probably the one i would that's if there's a card on the bubble i would definitely say it'd be moonlight ritual and blood pact mm -hmm. if you were to be making changes i would be looking at those cards and then say cutting the moonlight ritual and blood pact for you know, i mean you've got lucky you've got spectral razor you've got read the signs you've got extra um skills so there's got quite a bit of competition there that uh, that you could include the blood pact i've found can be very helpful occasionally but it's it's really situational and sometimes sometimes you need it sometimes you don't ideally in this deck i want to upgrade to the yeah. uh, level three version of blood pact which pulls which turns it into a permanent and then you get another level zero card to replace it. Mm -hmm. And so then you could say, do I need a second Moonlight Ritual or do I want a Lucky, a Spectral Razor, something like that to fill that slot. So, Or Track Shoes. Or Track Shoes, yeah. I mean, there's there's so many good cards that could go in, in the deck that uh, it can be really tough to find the space to jam it all in, I guess. Is the... <laughs> yeah, I know. 30 is so small right <laughs> yeah it is it is you really feel i i really feel that in with as the card pool has grown that 30 is it's very tight and especially in solo where you're ideally you want the cards to be as efficient as possible and and so competition for those deck slots is very very tight and cards like i mean there's plenty of good cards that could go in this deck that just haven't made the cut yeah plus it sounds like in true solo like you kind of live and die by your opening hand so you don't have a lot of room for fun stuff in true solo i'd imagine like uh like i keep i keep mentioning track shoes that sounds great but it's not shriveling it's not six cents it doesn't help you hit the ground running even though it's track shoes and they help you run okay bad yeah, yeah. That was one thing I was going to mention about the deck, too, is that every card in the deck 
advances the game state or in theory attempts to advance the game state whereas you know like you said like a card like track shoes doesn't always you know give you that benefit yeah track shoes is is great for that extra move as well as the extra move past an enemy and uh, i usually play it in most pretty much any deck that can then that can take it i haven't needed it in in this particular version but uh yeah that having that ability to get a bit of extra movement is is huge in in just about any deck that can take it and that's one of the areas where this deck is currently lacking is that it doesn't have an astral projection to to hop around if necessary it doesn't have the track shoes to get that extra movement it has maybe even a little um, a little less investigation than i would like but okay it's it's worked out so far so but that's one thing well, also, I, I should note is that you know when I when I when we review our cards, I'm often pretty hard on on combo cards, and that is really my my solo playstyle coming into into the four because I don't have a lot of time for combos and fancy tricks when you're playing solo, and anything that sort of takes time to to set up the game could be over by the time you get all that stuff online and. Uh, I believe there's a the card I always sort of think about. I, I tested it once in solo and just didn't work. Was the the forbidden tome? I think it was dark dark knowledge or something like that. Where it's like, if you have twelve cards in your hand, then you can get all of these extra oh. benefits. And I was just finding I could never get twelve cards in my hand <laughs> fast enough to warrant. Yeah playing it whereas i think if you're playing in maybe two-handed or three or four player you're going to have the time to do it and and get that online at some point and in solo is just like nope game's going to be over soon so this card is is dead weight yeah that makes sense actually because you kind of when you have to do everything then you find yourself having a lot to do in true solo um whereas like in say in like four player especially if if you draw like a bad hand or you drop one of your combo pieces that you need to get your deck rolling, you can just say, okay, guys, you handle the pressure for a little while. I'm just going to go, I'm going to draw a couple of times and look for what I need, what I need. And you're kind of safe in a multiplayer setting because you know, there's someone else to take that bad guy. Um, we're in throw solo. If, if you're engaged with something, you have to deal with it right now, you know, regardless of what's in your hand. Yeah. So you can't afford for it to like, you can't afford to have like half of your combo in your hand and not the other half. Yeah. I should mention something. Uh, one aspect of, of the, of my play styles that initially I tended to not necessarily shy away from victory points, but I don't necessarily go out of my way to get them. I'm mm-hmm. very focused on completing the scenario without taking trauma, you know, completing the objectives getting out without taking trauma and if i miss a couple victory points along the way um, so be it and so i tend to earn uh, less experience than than you would in multiplayer where you've got sort of the luxury a of time and b the luxury more players who can sort of spread out and go to those those victory point locations i have tried to change it up more recently as as I gain more experience with the game and sort of the the flow of the game and understanding, you know, how much I can get accomplished that 
I tend to take a little bit more time these days just to try to to snipe a few of those extra VPs along the way. It's always it always feels very risky to me because the longer you spend in the scenario, the greater the chance that that something goes wrong. And uh, the other thing I should say is that uh, I tend not to fail a lot of skill tests unless I draw a tentacle. And if you've watched my channel, uh, any of the playthroughs I've done, that's usually when I'm failing skill tests. And I always sort of, it struck me as like, man, I, these tentacles are devastating to me. But that's really when I'm on, that's the only time I'm really failing skill tests is if I draw a tentacle because I'm always trying to be, uh, you know, work that angle of the bag where it's just like, if I'm playing on standard, I want to be two up before the pull. I have the skills to get me two up if necessary. I've got the you know high willpower, so I'm usually two up on my willpower skill tests. And the tests I'm failing are usually ones I don't care about anyway. So I'm usually passing the ones I want to pass unless I'm drawing tentacles. Mm -hmm. And passing skill tests is, is the name of the game here. And I think that that's yeah. something that you... That, while it's tempting to cut a bunch of skills, those are the things that help you pass skill tests and, and help propel you forward. Mm -hmm. Nate has brought a, a Finn Edwards deck to the table. Nate, to tell us a little bit about, uh, about your play style. You, you play primarily solo as well as a, as a two-player with, uh, with Vase. Yeah, Vase and I have been playing, oh gosh, almost for eight months i think at this point and it's been my primary way of playing the game recently so i've had to sort of adapt and change my deck building a little bit because while i was like you man from lang and building very efficient redundant solo decks just given the way that that format is structured two player allows you to be a little more lenient in card choices since there are more clues on the board you often need you know, things like fingerprint kit and stuff like that to investigate. And since Vase really likes to beat up monsters, I end up uh, having to be the Seeker of the two. And Seekers are, well, I have a love-hate relationship with Seekers. So I built a Finn deck. <laughs> <laughs> and I often find that Seekers need a way to just get out of dodge for a turn so that they can kind of reset the game state while their, you know, while their Guardian is off killing whatever monster is in the way the seeker needs to be able to kind of fend off for a turn or so and i've really uh come to like rogues for that reason and in the more recent sets rogues have gotten a lot of great ways to investigate and then obviously they also have lock picks which is one of the better ways to investigate in the game so so i built my whole deck around evading enemies and getting clues the level zero version doesn't have lock picks but you would obviously upgrade into that we have cards like Pilfer and Intel Report and William Webb to grab location or grab grab clues from locations. I liked the idea of using William Webb in this deck because Finn gets that extra action to evade, so he can he can evade, move, and then investigate at a location and then use Webb to grab the clue from the location that he evaded an enemy from. So that's kinda nice. I also like card draw, and rogues have quite a bit of card draw with pickpocketing and lucky cigarette case. And since Finn wants to be evading, he's going to be making a lot of skill checks. He evades, he can pickpocket and get a lucky cigarette case trigger, which is really nice. And then you're drawing two cards. And then the 25 automatic is there just to serve as a 
you know, sometimes you just need to get something off the board, whether it's like an acolyte or a cultist or something like that. It's, it's nice to have in those situations. I also tend to favor skills quite a bit, so I have 10 skills in my deck, and the reason for it is just, one, I like the neutral skills because they replace themselves, so I can keep churning through my deck and find things that I need, but skills are they're just very useful cards. You know, you never, you never feel disappointed drawing a skill card, especially one with two icons. <laughs> so, so I often... I often play card draw in combination with skills because that just kind of gets you over that hump. And mm -hmm. I like that this deck is often investigating or evading at a six, which is sort of like that threshold you want to be at in standard. Mm -hmm. And then you have, you know, I play uh, Money Talks and Guts to kind of cover uh, Finn's terrible willpower. Despite a lot of people thinking that you can sort of just you know, take those on the chin. There are some treacheries you need to be able to get rid of. You know, things like uh, Frozen in Fear or any of those nasty hexes from Circle Undone are like, yeah. mandatory to get off of you. So having Guts and Money Talks are nice ways to be able to, to combat those things. And Guts is usually comboed with Lucky. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Then you can handle those difficulty three willpower tests. Yeah. Plus you can upgrade into Savant, right, Nate? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and that's kind of the other thing about the way I build decks, too, is I sort of build my decks from an upgraded version and then kind of use backwards induction to get to the level okay. zero version. So I'm kind of thinking, like, well, if I want to build a bit, if I want to build a deck with Savant in it, you know, and that's essentially serving the role of passing willpower tests, then I'm going to play Guts at level zero and then kind of, like, configure the deck in such a way. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I upgrade depending on how the campaign goes. Okay. So one of the nice yeah, things about Finn is that he, be between his four perception or four intellect and four agility, you've got a very good foundation for both investigating and invade and evading, which which this deck really wants to be good at both. And so, how much setup do you find that you need to to get this to get rolling? I really like my decks to be low to the ground, sort of like how you were saying, you know, I really only want like one to two key assets in play. And I think for this deck, it's probably and ally and some source of card draw, whether that's pickpocketing or lucky cigarette case, just to kind of get the deck rolling, get card draw. And then once you're, once you've got those two things, I think everything else is sort of a luxury. You know, mm -hmm. because skills kind of get you over the hump of most of the skill tests in the game. You know, you end up kind of just accruing a pile of cards towards the end of the game, and, you know, that's usually enough to get you over those more difficult skill tests. I see you also have four allies here. Yeah, sounds like a bit of redundancy there. And uh, I see you also, like, have multiple lone wolves and... Yeah, a bit of that carries over from solo, for sure. Yeah. But, you know, I like to, you know, make sure that my opening hand is good. And mm -hmm. having, I think, enough assets is critical for that. Yeah, because that happens a lot. It's like you uh, you get your opening hand, you're like, okay, what am I mulliganing for? Assets? Mm -hmm. You know, that tends to be... It's, it's like you if you draw, like, a nimble in your opening hand, you're probably not going to keep it, right? Yeah. Yeah, I often find that I end up cutting a lot of events out of my decks because okay. a lot of them end up sort of being useless or not useless but 
they sort of end up kind of being like solving a problem that they sort of create on their own in a way. Okay. Where it's like, had I just taken two investigate actions rather than spending four resources in a card. Mm-hmm. I see know. what you're saying. Yeah. We still have intel reports though. Those are good. I like intel mm-hmm. report. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and that's yeah. that's there to grab two clues. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like uh it's it's drawn to the flame, but for rogues. Kinda. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So serves a similar purpose. Okay. Yeah, it's a, but it, it sounds like you don't have enough room. Once again, you like you, you probably would put the uh, level zero pickpocket uh, lockpicks in here if you had more room, but thirty is just too small. Yeah. No, and, you know honestly, yeah. I think I don't think I would. You know, okay. I I do think there are decks that would require that, but I I feel like with a deck like this, you sort of just want like a couple things and then you keep going. And yeah. another thing that I sort of build decks around is the difficulty. So it's like if I'm playing on standard, I don't really need my skill test to be much more than seven or eight. Oh, uh, that's true. That's true. So you know, so I'm sort of building around that kind of constraint. Whereas like if mm-hmm. I'm playing something like expert or hard, then I'm you know kind of dialing that gauge to a different percentage, which okay. is usually just evading the bag entirely. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, expert's kind of weird like that. Expert mm-hmm. true solo. Oh gosh. Yeah, like that's that sounds like a test of like. Can you draw enough cards that will let you evade, you know, evade the bag entirely? Yeah. So, how much coordination do you and and Vase do when you're when you're building your decks for the two player format? I think at this point we've sort of developed a a symbiotic relationship in our deck building, where we sort of know how each other kind of ticks. Whereas okay. we we sort of just kind of naturally fit together, whereas he tends to favor more combat, I tend to favor more investigation, and that really kind of works out well for us, personally. But, you know, I, I think if I was to build a deck for specifically solo, there would definitely be changes I would make to this deck. And it would probably be including more combat cards. Oh, gotcha. So how do you handle things when, like, things are starting to go bad? You know, like, what happens when you draw Nate Special? How do you recover from that? I mean, that's sort of just axiomatic to all of my games, so you sort of just shrug it off after the 100th one. <laughs> <laughs> so what you're saying is you uh, you fail a lot? Yeah, but, you know, there are a lot of skill tests that you, you're kind of okay with failing. Yeah. You know, so, some skill tests you're like, eh, you know, I'll test 3 to 3. If I fail it, it's no big deal in two-player. And then sometimes you just pass those tests, mm-hmm. which is just sort of gravy. Um it's often why I end up not playing things like the survivor cards that, you know, do things when you fail. Because I often try to, like, set up a take heart, and then I pass the test anyway, and I'm like, oh my god, why did that's I bother doing this? That's what they do. That's, that, that's how they work, right? It, they, that's, that's what you experience when you play those, failing to fail. Yeah. There's it, a... it, it's like, at that point, just play Unexpected Courage, and then just actually pass go. the skill And test. then pass the test, Yeah. <laughs> Or draw a tentacle, and then you get to curse your luck, and you can say, ah! <laughs> yeah, and I find myself sort of in the same situation as Man from Lang, where it's like, oftentimes, the autofail is the only thing I'm failing a skill test on. Unless I'm, like, prepared to fail a skill test. Like, I'd just oh, yeah. take a skill test in the face or whatever. But Yeah, that seems to be a common thing, is, like, once you, you know, once you... Um get some experience with the game and you start learning which skill tests you're able to pass, which skill tests you're able to afford failing. Like you start, 
getting to the point where you just kind of push the important ones, like you boost the important ones, then you're just it's the auto fail that matters at that point. Mm-hmm. And that's why I play a lot of card draw in, in decks that I build. Ah, uh, gotcha. It's because I kind of like to churn through my deck, find enough skill icons, fail the mm-hmm. skill tests I'm okay with failing, and really like push through those skill tests I want to succeed at. Okay. So do you do you think you take a lot of draw actions? Do you see yourself mm, doing that? Sometimes, if I don't okay. build my deck very well. But I think a deck like this, once you get pickpocketing or cigarette case down, that's usually mm-hmm. enough. Okay. Especially yeah, so you've got an engine. Yeah. Yeah, especially in tandem with neutral skills. I think that sort of gives you enough cycling through your deck to kind of feel okay. feel that strategy. Okay. Yeah, where else I know where uh, whereas I noticed in um uh, Mr. Lang's deck, I didn't see any of the uh neutral card draw skills. In fact, I don't think besides Arcane Initiate, that's like the only card draw in his deck. Yeah, yeah, the mm-hmm. the deck doesn't include uh, very much card draw mm-hmm. at uh, at level zero, and usually I will play more neutral skills, but mm-hmm. this one has uh, has worked out. The arcane initiate is pretty important, though. If you don't necessarily draw what you need in your opening hand, then I'm looking for an initiate pretty quickly to the uh, to draw. As much as you know, you're getting a card, you're getting one card every turn with the initiate, and hopefully mm-hmm. you're you're gonna find a spell sooner than later. Okay. So it sounds think... like Mister Le- Mister Lang, you had a point where like you've got your two assets that you need down, and then you're just good. It doesn't matter what you draw, like you're good, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting to compare these these two decks where. Uh, I think with you know a few minor tweaks that this is a the type of deck that I would play in solo as well. I mean it's got enough clue discovery in there. It's got enough um, you between the the twenty five automatic and the uh, Finn's natural ability to evade. You've got that covered. You've got money talks and guts to to try to get through the the occasional. Um, willpower treachery that you need to pass i mean worst comes to worst you could always pick up into the thick of it and get any of the any of the cards from edge of the earth whether it's savant or counter espionage or stuff like that if if you were really worried it's got a you know perception and unexpected courage to to help with clues quick thinking gives you that action advantage which is which is always nice same with track shoes so I don't think you'd really need to make that many changes to this deck for it to to do well in in solo as well. Yeah, and I also noticed on Nate's deck here, it's not like it's got some engines, but it's not like an elaborate Rube Goldberg machine where you need like five different assets on the board to really get rolling. Yeah, it seems to like Lucky Cigarette Case is good on its own. Mm-hmm. Pickpocketing pretty good on its own. Lone Wolf pretty good on its own. Yeah, but like definitely start seeing some synergies there like once you once he's got a lone wolf a pickpocketing and a lucky cigarette case like he's he's doing pretty well he like never needs to take resources again you know or draw yeah you never or draw like ever draw again yeah yeah and, and then the yeah you've got the track shoes william webb nimble combos as well right where you mm-hmm. move around the map and sort of like gauge the shroud value depending on the locations mm-hmm you know, yeah, yeah I, I like my decks. I think my play style is adaptable. I think if I was to encapsulate it in one word. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. 
Yeah. And uh, I also noticed that you have um, a, quite a decent amount of skill cards. Um, that seems to be something that I've noticed on following Arkham DB a lot, is that a lot of players cut skill cards down to like two. two I love skill, skill cards. cards. Yeah, they're great. They cost zero. They do things. <laughs> yeah, they don't take actions. Yeah, like that's the really subtle power of mm -hmm. skill cards, is that they don't cost anything. And like you said, they do stuff on top of they passive tasks. Yeah. Yeah, they do stuff. Like, even just Guts and Perception here, they seem to, uh, you know, they'll draw your cards. You've got quick thinking to get a whole extra action. Yeah. Nimble yeah. gives you up to, like, up to three actions if that's what you need at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, uh, you know, with the movement there. Yeah. I also see Unexpected Courage in there. Very good. Love that card. <laughs> in the game. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see. I also, I don't see any, um, besides pickpocketing, I don't see a whole lot of resource generation here. We've got Lone Wolf and Pickpocketing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you got Lone Wolf. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Yeah, I'd considered playing something like Faustian Bargain, and I think there is certainly an argument to be made to play it. Maybe you take out Pilfer and play... I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Deck space is a little tight, but I, I do think that there is room for it. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, it seems like you're not, like, relying on Leo DeLuca so much. Like, if you needed Leo DeLuca to get going, you'd need some more resources to get there. Yeah, you could definitely cut Leo out of the deck, too. You know, yeah, he is expensive, and you don't need him, per se. Mm -hmm. I think, like, having pickpocketing or cigarette case plus, you know, some form of investigation is more important. Yeah, I mean, as great as Leo is, he doesn't he doesn't boost your stats at all. Mm -hmm. like, he doesn't help you pass tests. He just gives you more opportunities to, fit, to draw um, Nate specials, right, Nate? Pretty much, yeah. And I think, you know, when you go to upgrade the deck, you're probably going to put in Lola, or you're going to put in... Delilah, depending on how the campaign is going. So, you know, that, that spot is pretty modular as well. Uh -huh. Good stuff. So, like, differences here, it sounds like um, it sounds like you're you're pushing towards two-player a lot. So you're starting to include things that, like, give you multiple clues. Yep. And, yeah. But yet, also, you're still pretty adaptable. I like it. Nate and I are at the, the one- and two-player end of the scale. Matastrophic is... Uh... At the opposite end, playing three and four player, talk about uh, tell us about your uh, your play style, Matastrophic. Although I gotta admit, I'm kind of a, a con I'm kind of a living contradiction, because often enough, when some when uh, you hear about playing three player and four player, you know what's 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 the what's the like word on your lips? It's uh, specialist, specialist, specialist. You know, you specialize in something. But no, I'm a, I, I I like playing generalist decks. I think it's because I um, I most enjoy Arkham when everybody is contributing to everything, and you don't have the the problem of like a guardian who has nothing to do unless monsters are on the board, and then you have a seeker who's just like zipping ahead of everybody, and you know, then you just run into the problem of the guardian and the seeker have done everything and everyone else is catching up. I my favorite games involve like everyone finding weird ways to contribute to everything. So the deck, I, the deck I've brought to the table is like an ultimate generalist deck. It's one that I've worked on a lot in uh, after Edge of the Earth came out, and it features Nate's favorite card, Force Learning. And the reason for it is like, so I can go even more generalist. Yep, I take it from your um, expression there, Nate, that you are just like bursting with excitement. You're saying, congratulations, Matt. You are a genius for using a Seeker card in a non-Seeker deck, right, Nate? exactly what i was saying yeah exactly yeah so in a, in, a, in a really general sense um what really at first informed my deck building at first when i got into the game i checked out um drawn to the flame 
their uh, you know the podcast and one of their early episodes talking about your first deck building you know they they gave the guidance of 10 assets 10 events 10 skills now i gotta say in the modern era like how often do you see people playing 10 assets 10 events 10 skills like how often do you see that yeah not not very often I'd yeah say. it's 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 not much yeah where you see that but that kind of like is what set me down the path so what that means is compared to um compared to the way a lot of people build decks i actually like tend to go pretty low on assets like i've kind of turned gone from 10 10 10 to like 12 8 10 a lot you know in like a 30 card deck um Largely because I like refuse to cut skill cards. Skill cards are so good. Um, they do things and they don't cost anything. And what I notice, uh, what I've noticed a lot is that when um, when people build decks and they include very few skill cards, what I think what they what's really going on is they just want to include everything and they they can't cut a lot. So they end up with this lopsided deck that has like eighteen events. Sorry, like eighteen assets. That happens a lot. And then they'll have like 10 events and two skill cards. Like that's a kind of a typical layout. But now we're starting to get into the way I like to build decks and the way I like to play. Much like the two of you, I tried to go light rig. I want to not necessarily hit the ground running as quick, like immediately, but I want to be functional with like one thing, with like one asset on the board. Um, in fact, in this, this, um, this Jenny deck I'm showing off here, um, there have been entire games where I've like completed the whole scenario with just like one gun. Yeah. And like the rest of the time I'm like investigating or I'm moving or I'm taking, um, various skill tests on locations or I'm evading and engaging engage. That's something that happens a lot in multiplayer, by the way, engage is a, is something that could really lead to nice, fun tactics because that's what I actually like to do. I like to, I like to avoid taking resource actions and draw actions whenever I can because resource actions and draw actions are like, okay, I have nothing to do now. I can't really, I'm not in a position to help the team. I'm not in the position to push the game state. So I'm just going to dirtle a little bit and draw and take resources. Not that that's bad, like especially draw actions. Draw actions can be very good if you have skill cards because now you're looking for ways so like when it is your turn to push the game state forward, you have icons to do it. But I try to play a really generalist decks because I like I really enjoy um turns when I can just be like okay, I shoot this guy, then I move over here and then I investigate. And so I'm always pushing the game state forward. So what that means is that a lot of a lot of my asset choices in particular tend to just work on their own. I don't tend to go down lots of like elaborate combos because I don't like being in a position where I have to get like five assets out in order to nerf my deck to like take off like rocket fuel. Because you see that a lot. You'll see some uh you'll see some um decks that are out there where it's like, okay, well, this deck is entirely built around like a slow buildup until they eventually like take off like a rocket. Um, perfect example, anytime you'll see a deck that has um, Hawkeye Folding Camera, they're probably going for something like that, where, okay, they're going to play this asset, Hawkeye Folding Camera, that does nothing when you put it out there. That's key. Does nothing. But by the time, you know, the game is, like, mostly over, they've they've got this, like, mega nine willpower machine. Yeah, I'll, I'll see that quite a bit. And that's, like, a perfectly valid way to um, build decks in multiplayer, a deck that, like turtles up at the beginning, you know, and but then takes off like a rocket, you know, to kind of push the uh, end of the game. And um, 
and this is where my walking contradiction kind of comes into play is that I, tr I i try not to do that because i just don't th find that very interesting i like um i like playing generalists because also when you're playing four players you have four different encounter cards hitting the table so anything can happen um somebody could draw a tentacle on rotting remains and all of a sudden they're at two sanity I like to be able to step in and help out. Someone could someone could end up with an enemy on them, and then they draw another enemy. Now they've got two enemies on them, and, oh, look, they only have one bullet left. I like to be able to step in and help out. I, I, I like playing generalist, even though four players, you would think, is the realm of specialists. So that's why, like, Jenny is kind of, like, perfect for me, because, um, you know, three, 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 three. And that's another aspect of, like, my play style is I'm a big fan of balanced stat lines. Because um, I don't really like playing, I don't really like having a lane where, um, like, say, Mark Harrigan, even though I've played Mark Harrigan before successfully, I don't like having a lane where I either do my one thing and I do it really well, and then I don't do anything else. So Jenny's kind of perfect for me. I also like Jenny because her ability means I don't have to take as many resource actions you know, as like, uh, as a different investigator. Um, I like, I mean, her power, I think, is being able to kind of break the resource curve a little bit, you know, and she, so she can play things like Fingerprint Kit, which is one of my favorite cards in the game, um, pretty effectively because it just doesn't cost her as much. So what that means is that between, between Jenny's additional resource, um, her three 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 stat line, and yet you know, the ability to play more expensive resource intensive things, like, that's why I kind of, fall into Jenny quite a bit a lot because um, now I can just like look at the entire card pool and I can ch I can choose what do I what I do want to do like in a general sense and then I can spend the whole campaign like shoring up weaknesses in the team so to get to this deck in particular another aspect of how I like to build decks is I like to have like a chassis that like a core that I can like switch components out and this um, I actually spend quite a bit of time in this deck write-up showing the different uh, aspects that this deck can take so the example here, I have Trenchcoat and Lonnie Rittner to kind of go like down the combat route. But you can see in the side deck here, I have substitutions for if you want to have like all, all full-on combat. I have substitutions like Dario Element and Fingerprint Kit if you want to go like full-on um, clue getting. And, and, and then you can swap out things like Lonnie Ritter for like say Dario Element if you want to, you know, push more investigations. So yeah, between... Being a you know, playing a generalist playstyle, the three 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 stat line, um, trying to avoid taking, trying to avoid turtling up and taking um, drawn resource actions, and having a, a deck that is like moldable based on how the campaign is going. Uh, that's another thing I don't I don't like to do. I I don't like to start off with a um, with a finished product like Nate you were saying. I like to start at zero. I love build, building level zero decks and then kind of like morphing them as the campaign is is going along, as I see what the team is having trouble with. And then I'll kind of like, you know, take picks based on what the team needs. Yeah, so endless morphing as the campaign goes and I and without specializing too much. I just like being able to help out no matter what um no matter what happens to the team. So that kinda kinda sums up my playstyle, I have to say. I uh, like the fact, looking at uh, your deck, that even though you're playing a card like Forest Learning that has a that increases the size of your deck, that I don't see uh, many, if any, cards in here that I wouldn't consider playing. You know, you're you're focused yeah. a lot on just playing still very efficient cards, not uh, elaborate combos or or anything like that. That 
takes a lot of time and and resources to to set up i know when i when i've been playing in solo draw and resource actions are are very rare for me as well but uh, initially when i saw this deck i was kind of like holy cow like this uh usually when i've played multiplayer it's always been in those settings where everybody is very focused on on specializing so seeing a deck like this is 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 quite uh shocking <laughs> to someone who is who has played usually ends up playing a specialist where it's just like okay i'm good at fighting i'm or i'm good at investigating and if I'm not doing one of those things, I don't have a lot to contribute to the team. Mm -hmm. And I can definitely see the advantages to playing a, a more generalist style where if somebody needs help, you can step in and say, okay, well, I've got your back here. I can take this enemy yeah. or I can discover a few clues along the way and, uh, and pitch in. Yeah, because what happens, um, ironically, what can often happen in multiplayer is, um, like I mentioned, in four player, you have four encounter cards hitting the board every turn, so all sorts of things can happen. So what that means is, I and personally, I like being able to flex around and being able to say, okay, well, this turn, we had no enemies got drawn. I'd like to start cluing now. Or another turn, we had three three enemies and a disabling treachery hit the board. I, I think it's go time. I think I need to start shooting. And that's also part of why I like Rogue, because they have a lot of, lot of ability to deal with um, both aspects. Whereas, like if I were if I were playing a full on guardian, which I have done um, to great success, but I prefer being in a position where I can say, "All right, well, no enemies got drawn. Okay, I'm going to do something else that helps the team," as opposed to, "Okay, no enemies got drawn. I guess I'll take resources and draw cards." You know, I like uh, I like continually pushing the uh, game state forward. I also like, and also combined with that is, I'm not a big fan of decks that break late, where um, you spend you spend a lot of uh, time and energy getting to a point where you're at like eight combat, and then everything melts before your flamethrower. You know, I like uh, I like just scraping by instead. You know, and you get to that point pretty quickly. Like I said, with this deck, you can get like two assets down on the board, and uh, you're you're good to go. Force learning really helps with that with being able to flex. I have to say, as uh, as much as Nate totally agrees with me, um, force learning is how I'm able to play justify playing cards like Hallowed Mirror which I may never need. But once again, with four encounter cards hitting the board every turn, like someone can get spiked down with like a couple of bad token pulls. And now they're sitting at one, one will, um, one horror left. And it's nice to be able to say, I got you, bro. And, uh, you know, you play your hallowed mirror and then you say, there you go. I'll heal your, I'll heal two of your horror. And you're in that person's, you know, back in the game. Whereas if we're like halfway through the game and no one's taken a whole lot of damage or horror, I draw the hallowed mirror off of force learning and it's like okay well i'll pitch it yeah, and force learning is also really nice with the neutral skills too because then you're cycling yeah. more cards and i see that you have yeah. all of the neutral skills yes absolutely because um yeah absolutely and force learning is what lets me do that and because um how to describe it thanks to the variation thanks to variation and the um encounter card pulls there might be one scenario where i, dr I just happen to have to take a lot of willpower tests so I can hang, I hang on to guts, you know, force learning lets me hang on to guts and discard things that are not going to help me on those willpower tests. But then another game might come along where I just haven't had to make a bunch of willpower tests based to like, based on the variation of the encounter deck. So then I would discard guts when guts comes up. 
and that's part of why I really like force learning because now from turn to turn, I can kind of like flex based on how the game is going. Yeah. And and they're really nice cards to have in multiplayer when you can commit them to somebody else's skill test. Yep, that's part of why I like unexpected courage. I have two in every single deck, and I never take it out because uh, oh, I think it took it out once in a very focused Mark Harrigan deck once because you know Mark is Mark, he can boost his own skills anyway, but. I've noticed with Unexpected Courage, I bring two of those like every game. I will save someone's butt with the Unexpected Courage because there will be a there will be a chance when like somebody just happens to you know get cornered by an enemy and we just don't have enough actions to like ev engage and evade it for them. And so like being able to help out someone with two agility, make an evasion test, you know, like Unexpected Courage is how you like save people's butts that way. And uh, yeah. And it always happens once a game. I just manage to save someone's butt with unexpected courage. And uh, force learning really, really helps with that because it can kind of ensure I have a, a unexpected courage in hand. But if I have a turn where I have like a seven card hand and then unexpected courage is already there, I have the option of ditching the second one if I draw mm -hmm. it. It's sort of like Lone Wolf kind of fits in that same yep. description too. Because if you draw the second one halfway through the game, you can pitch it with force learning. Or exactly. if you, you know, you happen to draw the first one halfway through the game and you're not going to play it, then you pitch it as well. You just pitch it. Yeah. Yeah, I've been, that's why I like Force Learning is like actually my favorite card in Edge of the Earth. <laughs> I really wish it was neutral. You know what? You know what, Mr. Lang? I think I need to like actually get on like Strange Eons and make a neutral version and just put it out in there for the world because it, that, that card needs to be neutral. It just enables like the super flex play style. And it's just something that like, I notice a lot of the Arkham community hasn't quite wrapped their heads around the benefits of a 45-card deck. One question I did have was, uh, going back to your point about playing generalists versus specialists, have you noticed any difference in games between the two? Like if you're sitting at a table with a bunch of specialists versus a bunch of generalists, does one or the other have an easier time of it, or is... Like, okay. Have you, have you noticed a, a difference between how those games play out? Yeah. Okay. So I gotta admit, overall, I've noticed that that especially in like three or four player, a table of specialists, they can often hit the point where the scenario is just not capable of standing up to them. Like the like the one guardian is able to deal with all the enemies that come out. Like all. Okay. So how to describe it? A single like. A table of specialists can get to a point where, given that the encounter deck doesn't hit their weaknesses too early, a table of specialists can build up to the point where they are the encounter deck just can't stand up. Where a given turn will happen when the guardian's all set up, the party's kind of close together, two enemies get drawn, the guardian melts them, and then uh, and then that was the main threat that's on the board. And then the other three are able to like push the game forward. That's that's in particular what I see happen. I, I gotta admit, a table of specialists, given that the encounter deck agrees with them and doesn't push them too hard at the beginning of the game, will hit a point where they just roll over the scenario because their skill values are too high and nothing's touching them. Or you know, the guardian's set up. He's got all his ammo and he's doing four damage. He's doing four damage in action. The the encounter deck's not going to be able to not be able to you know deal with that because the encounter deck doesn't scale up over the course of the game for the most part i mean there are some 
agendas that will like shuffle new um like new encounter cards into the encounter deck they also tend to shuffle the rest the discard pile into the encounter deck as well so it takes a while for those for that leveled up encounter deck to start rearing its head if you want like full-on results honestly specialists tend to be the way to go um i just my most enjoyable games tend to be ones of general of all generalists where we don't have to tag each other in you know where we're all getting to do do our thing and like all getting to push the game forward and we don't have that problem of somebody has nothing to do yeah that's the the one thing i notice when i move to playing two play or two-handed solo is that i tend to build focus a little bit more on specialization and and often end up where one guy doesn't have a lot to do and is taking a lot of those draw or resource actions for lack of anything better to do and and listening to you talk about how generalists are able to push the game forward it might be i'd be curious to try that sort of play style and see how how that worked in that in that format and see if it you know, okay, like the last the last time I played two two handed solo, I believe I was just playing Harvey and Nathaniel from the uh, the mm-hmm. investigator starter decks, and Harvey was able to push the game forward by investigating like a madman, and Nathaniel melted just about anything that hit the table. But then there were a lot of times when Nathaniel would basically, if there was no enemy, he'd just sit there and and do nothing, and and. Yeah if he had a few more tools at his disposal to say grab a clue here and there that might be who knows maybe the game ends quicker that way but that's that's true because um like i think one point i did want to make when it comes to specialists is that often enough like especially in three and four player given that the specialist gets time to set up like it hits a point where the game just can't keep up with them um i gotta admit i think it's kind of so when you're saying um, you have, like, Nathaniel will have turns when he has nothing to do, the game doesn't punish you for for having for being in that situation. Like, the game isn't, you know, the game isn't putting enough pressure on you for, for that to be a bad thing, mm-hmm. I got to admit. I guess what I'm saying is that generalist or specialist playstyles, the game kind of supports both. I think the game kind of rewards specialists a little more, I got to admit. But I think generalists, generalist playstyles are more fun. Yeah, because yeah. I think in that situation where Nathaniel didn't have anything to do, you'd need, like, two enemies isn't even enough. Because exactly. he, can, he exactly. can easily handle that. You need three or four. But the yeah. odds of getting in that situation, you'd have to have a really bad run with Nathaniel to not to be in that situation. So things have already gotten... Something has already gone wrong. He's failed some skill tests or drawn a couple tentacles that missed a couple of attacks because generally i think he especially somebody like nathaniel he can dish out a ton of damage and take down pretty much anything that that would threaten the group and so so actually that reminds me um the your discussion of harvey and nathaniel there was one um two-handed um playthrough of circle undone i did that was a lot of fun and instead of so it was actually like a similar dynamic but i brought two largely generalist decks instead of harvey and nathaniel i brought marie and tommy muldoon and so what what i was able to do with marie and tommy is i was able to say okay marie you're gonna have like you're gonna be like 
70% you know, clue getting and like 30% fighting. So what did she do? She had um, Sixth Sense, she had Clairvoyance, um, but she also had some Shriveling and she had Spectral Razor and she had um, Storm of Spirits. Tommy Muldoon, he had, it was mainly a, like a Becky focused build. So, you know, he had, you had Becky and he had ways to find Becky and load Becky and he had like the Soak allies and he had um, Solemn Vow to like soak the damage, but he also had Winging it. So when uh, Tommy would like shoot the baddie and have two actions left, winging it from the bin, and then what do you do? Like all those extra cards I had, like you know, take the initiative and stuff. I could just throw them into the winging it test. So then, oh, there you go. Tommy just discovered two clues in an action. So that was like a, a generalist spin on two investigators that could very quickly become specialists. Yeah, and that's something I can suggest to like kind of if you want to like break the mold of being like of having two very focused investigators. Yeah. I think the the danger I see in that is is sometimes if the, especially if the the encounter deck does find the I guess the chink in your armor and you end yeah. up getting the wrong cards on the wrong investigator it's like okay now the the 30% fight investigator is suddenly surrounded or the the clover <laughs> can't get an usually that's what happens it's just like the investigator yeah. who isn't geared up to fight ends up having to do more fighting than you were expecting and yep. that's when you can run into trouble and it's just like okay how do i get myself out of this situation and if you don't remedy that situation quickly enough that can spiral out of control and and then the fighter of the group simply has too much on their plate and the the non-fighter can't help enough to get you to get you out of that mm -hmm. Well, that's one of those times when uh, things things have gone horribly wrong, right? Right. Yeah. It's not like normal that that happens. I speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. I think I know what's going on. I think it's because uh, in our experiences over all these years, Mr. Lang and I have passed too many tests and Nate has failed too many tests. And that is what has, uh, <laughs> that is what is like sent us down our paths. Maybe. I think... <laughs> Probably it's more that all of my failures are televised. <laughs> I just always assumed that Nate plays with two tentacles in the back because he's hardcore, and the rest of us, are, he, just, he just hasn't told anybody that the game has become so easy for him that he's just been playing with two tentacles in the bag. Maybe it's because he tried streaming once with only one tentacle in the bag and he fell asleep. <laughs> and so he just like quietly added a second one just so he could stay awake. Right, Nate? No, that's why all the blessed tokens get added to the bag. Oh, so we could you could summon up the tentacle. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Got it. Yeah, I see. Hmm. That's going to do it for our look at uh, our discussion of play styles uh, at uh, solo, two-handed, and uh, multiplayer. I hope that you uh, found something useful in this. Thanks to uh, Joshua Westland for uh, suggesting the topic. Leave a comment down below and tell us a, a little bit about uh, your play style. Uh, I think uh, some of these decks are uh, are available on uh, ArkhamDB if you'd uh, like to take a look at them. And uh, so, uh, any final thoughts about uh, about play styles and how uh, it informs your deck building? I think if I was to sum up mine, it would be I'd be quite happy if I could play two assets and that would be it, and just roll through scenarios that way i know i i did beat the pallid mask once with a, a soul 45 automatic in my player <laughs> and, 
and that was it and i was quite uh, that for me was the ideal game i beat it quickly i had one asset and just passed skill tests what about you guys my decks to be a little more interesting than that um i tend to build you know little sets of combos in my deck like we were saying earlier you know i've got that like nimble moving around the map discovering clues at connecting locations thing going on but i don't let it deter me from the ultimate goal of winning the scenario and i think another thing that's unique about the way that I build decks or maybe just the two player format in general is that I am focused on doing something, but I have the backup of evading or shooting the thing with the 25 yeah. automatic. Yeah. Whereas I seem to go, uh, even in four player ultimate flex, um, flex when I build the deck flex, when I level the deck flex, when I play the deck, just like wanting to be able to help out in, um, in all situations without overpowering the encounter deck. That's going to do it for this episode. If you enjoyed what you hear, remember to like, comment, and subscribe. If you need to contact me, I can be reached at manfromlang at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at manfromlang. Until the stars are right, keep your shotgun close and your elder sign closer. Take care out there, and happy investigating.